Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins. I'm sat here, as usual, with Mr. Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And we're both sat here with our very special guest, Neil Tennant. Welcome. Hello. Nice to be here. <laughs> We're in very honoured. In your to... cupboard. In the archive. In the archive. Well, yeah. we're very honoured to have you here, especially since you must be very busy with the new Pet Shop Boys album. Actually, we've sort of done the promo now. Okay. Yeah. And okay. we're just getting ready to... We're going on tour. Yeah. And so we're just starting to work on that now. Well, thank you for coming in on a very drizzly Thursday. Yes. To talk to us. In this episode, we'll be discussing... Everything that's new on Rock's Back Pages and paying tribute to the great Andrew Wetherill, who died earlier this week. But let's start with Smash Hits, the <laughs> fabulous pop magazine that you wrote for Neil in the early 80s. That's 82 to 85, yeah. 82 to 85. Tell us how Smash Hits shaped your sensibility and the flip side of that, how you helped to shape smash hits because you were for a period you were assistant editor were you not i was yeah well i was always interested in pop music mm. and also in songwriting you know as a child I, I got a guitar and i taught myself to play the guitar i taught myself to play the piano and we used to have sheet music at home and stuff like that and i wanted to be a songwriter really from what age? Eh? oh from about the age of 12 really yeah that's what i wanted to do and i and i wrote songs consistently by myself from the age of 12 till I met Chris Lowe in 1981. Yeah. But then I you know I did a degree in history and then I worked Marvel Comics as my first job. That's the UK right. Marvel Comics, where we had seven comics a week. They used to make the colour American monthly comics into weekly black and white comics. And I had to put them together and, and put the editorial pages in. And that was the first time I wrote anything, actually. I decided that as various pop stars were Marvel Comics fans, I would interview them. And so, <laughs> and so I interviewed Mark Bolan, which is the first interview I ever did. Wow. In Mark Bolan was the first interview. Yeah, in the autumn of 1975, I went to Keith Oltham's office in... Not far from here, actually. Yeah. It was raining as well. And, uh, <laughs> and I had this ancient tape recorder that one of the graphic designers at Marvel Comics had lent me. I had never used one before. And so Mark comes in, he was in a slightly heavy phase, mm. had enormous fingers like sausages, and, and he had the Mark Burton voice, you know, like, yeah, the cat's great now. And, um, <laughs> and I, put the, I put the tape recorder down on the table, and then we went and sat on the sofa across the room. For some reason, I was, I was too cool to take... <laughs> I thought it was yeah. too committed to yeah. take the tape recorder with me. So we sat down and Mark Bonin looked, and just without stopping talking, walked across the room, got the cassette player, <laughs> and put it between them. Oh, how sweet! It was really sweet of them. As it happened, the cassette recorder didn't really work very well. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, so, and then I interviewed the Alex, sensational Alex Harvey band, mm -hmm. and I went. I got the full PR thing. We were driven a chauffeur. Me and a friend were driven a chauffeur-driven Jag to Coventry to see to see them. That was my second interview, and then my third interview was going to be Paul McCartney, but they weren't having it. Okay. And the base at Durellas weren't having So yeah. my series came to an end. Anyway, <laughs> and then I worked in book publishing, and then I worked in book publishing involved with TV tie-ins, which was ITV books. And while I was there, we did a book, which I thought of with madness, a sort of pamphlet, really, mm -hmm. a magazine. To do you remember their film, Take It or Leave It? Yes. And we did Take It or Leave It, the official <laughs> film tie-in. And I got Steve Bush to design it, who was, started designing the face 
Right. I didn't actually know Smash Hits by the way, mm-hmm. this, because I was a sort of NME reader. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I used to go meet Steve Bush to, to get the layouts. And my friend from Newcastle, Eric Watson, did the pictures mm-hmm. for that. And then suddenly I went to the Smash Hits office and I met Dave Hepworth. Mm-hmm. And they loved these pictures Eric Watson had taken of Madness, which actually were very, very good. And then suddenly out of the blue, Dave Hepworth called me up and said they wanted to do a Smash Hits yearbook. Mm-hmm. And Steve Bush and I had just done the Tismos yearbook. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and and so I got this job to edit the Smash It's Yearbook. Dave didn't mention to me that I was also to be news editor of Smash Hits. <laughs> well, I discovered that on the first day. Did you? Yes. <laughs> That's amazing. And and I always remember going in for this interview. Mark, I met Mark Ellen for the first time, and I was carrying a jiffy bag. And Mark said, you know, the difference between book publishing and music journalism <laughs> is... But a bunch of people always carry jiffy bags. <laughs> Music journalists always carry 12-inch cardboard envelopes. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember him saying to me, welcome to the world of free records. <laughs> and this was such a great thing, the free records. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, suddenly, my tiny little studio flat in Chelsea was just... Had, you couldn't move for records. Fantastic. It was very, that was very exciting. I mean, you, you said that you were an enemy reason. Well, well, I mean, I, I'm very similar. I, I wasn't a smash hits reader at the time. It's actually doing my job here. He is has, now. Has, has introduced me to the delights of smash hits. Mm. And you say in the interview that we're going to be playing some clips of, you say that it actually it was kind of, it's quite a sophisticated mag. I mean, it wrote about all kinds of strands of music. And whilst it had a very kind of jokey tone, it loved the stuff and that, that sort of it, it transmitted across it I mean it, I wish I'd read it at the time yeah no it was the NME was always you know when I became a musician or whatever it was always like to stab you in the back <laughs> yeah. and you were, and the whole music press yeah, yeah. but not smash it but smash hits we always went with enthusiasm yeah, yeah. so people would write about their personal enthusiasms yeah. in pop music sure sure and people they knew were a great story mm-hmm. and also the sense of humour I think when I was there in 1985, that started to take over. Yeah, Tom yeah. Hibbert joined. Yes, yes, of course. Who was, who was an amazing yeah. sort of Baroque writer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, he, and Mark, you know, was a very funny writer. And Dave, you know, they're all, they're all funny writers. Yeah, absolutely. And that was a really, really important thing. And really turning pop stars into characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And all the nicknames. Mm. I mean, it was me that knighted Will, Sir William Idol, our Grace Living Englishman. <laughs> That was taken because in, I don't remember Oberon War used to write a diary in Private Eye. Yes. And he used to call, and he used to have the thing saying, Why has Peregrine Worthsorn never been knighted? And he would call him Sir Peregrine Worthsorn, our greatest living Englishman. And so I just got <laughs> that and gave it to Billy Idol. That's oh, fantastic. fantastic. Um, I mean, you, again, in the interview, you say that sadly, in a way, that that aesthetic went over to Q, but. It's kind of curdled in the process in some sort of way. There's... I don't remember this specific interview, of course, but it did go to queue. But I think you see it now in... I think its influence in music journalism is much stronger than, for instance, you might have assumed all music journalism would, would be influenced by Paul Morley or Ian mm-hmm. Hanman, if you looked at him from an early 80s perspective. Sure. But, if you, but if you look at G2... yeah. G2 in The Guardian is practically the smash hits mm-hmm. of our time. Yeah, you and can... of course the whole pop bitch aesthetic. And the pop bitch. Yeah. Although the pop bitch aesthetic is different because it's too bitchy. Mm. Okay, too bitchy. I, I mean, and you wouldn't yeah. have printed stories yeah. about no. people's sexual or 
or drug habits or whatever. Curiously, NME, I think, was influenced by smash hits in kind of in reverse. I mean, when I think of later writers at the end of the 80s, early 90s, like Barbara Allen and all that, uh, much, they were more, yes, much closer to smash, smash hits than, than Paul Morley, that's, that's for sure. And also the face. Yeah. Because the face was started by Nick Lowe. Yeah, and, of course, of course. And you had people like Leslie White. We tried to employ Leslie White's smash hits, but she went on and did journalism, yeah. Sunday mm. Times and things. Mm. You know, Smash Hits was over the road from the enemy. That's right. I was just about to say, (laughs) because when you came, you were reminiscing about the office and it just brought back these memories of working just across Carnaby Street from you guys. I mean, we must have walked past each other. No, you could literally Uh, see into the enemy's office. Yes, and we, I have to say, I certainly began to feel quite threatened by Smash Hits. I mean, I knew in some way that things were changing. There was a sort of seismic shift going on. Well, we on. knew that because we saw our yeah. circulation figures. We go, saw your go circulation through the roof. And I, was going I to... remember us once holding up our circulation yeah. figures at our window, and you were, of course, not you personally, <laughs> and me was across the road, and, yeah. and smash hits the circulation figures. There's, there's various yeah. photographs you can find us drinking, you know, with a mark and with a bottle of champagne, Yeah. Um, because our circulation has gone up to 400,000. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And by the time Chris and I are on a... Cu- we were reputedly on the best-selling issue smash hits ever on the cover when it was selling three quarters of a million in about 19... What issue was I that? I think that's in 1987, right. 1988. Yeah, okay. yeah. So, of course, great to be part of something that's happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, and, and that period of pop music, 82 to 85, I mean, if you go a little bit earlier, maybe 81 mm-hmm. to 85, is an incredible era of pop music mm. with probably kicked off by Dare by the Human League. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Soft Cell. Yeah. yeah. Culture Club, incredibly underrated, I think, as songwriters, because the pop thing sure. is, is so... The visuals are so strong. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that second album, Culture Club, made, I remember Ronnie Gurr, Virgin, uh-huh. phoning me up and saying, this is their rumours. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Needless to say, I'd never <laughs> listened to rumours. I, I knew what he meant by Fleetwood Mac. I knew it was a huge album. <laughs> And actually, if you listen to it, it is their rumours. Every song, <laughs> every song is, is fantastic. Is, was that Waking Up With The House On Fire? Or was that, I, I forget. I, I, I no, that's the third, kissing, that's, that's the a problematical third, third album. First one was Kissing, kissing To Be, be Clever. clever. Having, Second one was... Uh, eulogising about this album, I can't remember what it's called. Because yeah. um, they were essentially album artists. Um, <laughs> oh, I can't, but no. the, anyway, the second album is the one. Uh, right. Anyway, th- I think this... Uh, and. It's it's a great and it was a great time Actually, to be there. This is a good moment. First of all, we yeah. should play the, the Smash Hits clip. Yeah. And then after that the ideology clip, because you talk about Culture Club very specifically in that. Smash Hits was always when I was there, a sincere magazine with a deep commitment to music. And also Smash Hits was a post punk magazine. It was a magazine with an ideology. It was a magazine that believed in good pop music can be can be really good and really popular. When it's both of those things, it's fucking great. Right. And there was a bit of because I was one of the starters of the inverted. I mean, I really better come to glory there. And there was a bit of that going on, but it was also if you read it now, it reads painfully, sincerely. Let me tell you. But that was then imitated by successive generations of people. Right. In fact, Q is the Q now is a is a really bizarre. Ossified, you know, it has ossified style based on Mark Ellen and Steve Bush and, and, and Neil Tennant and Dave Hepburn. 
and everything's inverted content, it's really, really horribly done because they sort of because they haven't advanced it. It's smash hits we used to call it's we used to we, we don't use jokes in a matter of time. We'd say, right, that's old bollocks, we've got to have new bollocks now. Yes, we did used to say that. <laughs> I think that's, a, to be fair to Q, I think this... When was that interview? 96. Yeah, there was a period where Q became sort of unbelievably ironic. Yeah. And, and it didn't really didn't really work. I mean, the only uh, bit that worked actually was Tom Hibbert's Who the Hell Do You Think You Are sort of column. That was, abs- that was genius. Which was absolutely fabulous. Genius, yeah. But when it was applied to the, the writing about music, it, it sort of... It sort of wasn't their function. Yeah, really. yeah. Smash it. So I mentioned the pieces of yours. So you mentioned Soft Cell earlier. The first piece from July 82, which is an interview with Mark Armand. And it's actually really... It's very sweet. It, it kind of gets to the, the, the sort of vulnerability of Mark at that point. He talks about panic attacks and things we, we, you hear so much about today, but I get big bouts of nerves and occasional bouts of depression. Reading this made me wonder whether Soft Cell were an influence on the Pet Shop Boys. You talk about the impassive David Ball. And the he went few, to the same school as Chris Lowe. <laughs> Did he? <laughs> Did he? Okay, so, so, I mean, there's, there's obvious parallels there, but were, yeah. as an electronic duo, and probably the, the first electronic pop duo to have a huge hit, as they did, did that factor into your design of... It did in one way. When I first met Chris and we started talking about music, we both liked the single... I think their finest moment, in fact, Soft Cell had out, Bedsitter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it. Which is mm-hmm. an amazing piece of social realism, mm-hmm. actually. So dark. So dark. And, but also it's about what, what we did, wandering around Soho, going to clubs and stuff, mm-hmm. going to heaven or something. And that thing of the sort of imagined glamour of where you're going to and then you go back to your little bedsit, idol mm-hmm. studio flat on the King's Road. And although I've never really done social realism, that song was a sort of influence. Right. And, and I've often said for the Chris said to me, can't you make your lyrics more sexy? Because <laughs> <laughs> um, my lyrics were very singer-songwriter. Yeah. Uh, poetical. Yes. Yeah. They still are, really, yeah. in a way. But, but he was right. And, and, and West End Girls is a result of that. Mm. So I don't think West End Girls isn't indebted to Soft Cell, because it's really indebted to Grandmaster Flash. <laughs> um, but there was a sort of an aesthetic there yeah. that we sympathised with. We're going to... In fact, we could play it now, because I think this fits, is that you talk about how, oh. in the interview, about how the 90s were actually what everyone claims the 80s were, where the 90s was about greed and making money, and the 80s were, had a strong ideological element, even in the most... To this, to this day, completely underrated. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad I said that because I still don't know. <laughs> yeah. If you were to go back in a time machine to 1982, mm-hmm. you'd be surprised at how ragged the whole thing mm-hmm. is. Boy George's clothes are made by someone on a sewing machine in, yeah. in, in the East End or something. Yeah, yeah. And it's all quite homemade mm, yeah. and a bit naive. People are reading books... And getting a few mm. ideas. Steve Strange is watching Visconti films. Mm, absolutely. And everyone, mm-hmm. apart from Gary Newman, is left wing. Yeah. Uh, yep. <laughs> I mean, there's the embarrassing thing yeah, where no. Paul, Paul Weller has to go on the Red Wedge tour and discover to his horror Gary Kemper's Banda Ballet's on that night. <laughs> <laughs> they're meant to be Tory scum, but they're not. They're yeah. left wing no, too. No, it's ha- it's absolutely... And it's a very different time. Whereas by the 90s, mm-hmm. everyone has got, knows how the system works. Yeah, yeah. 
because the 90s is the heyday of the whole CD mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. Everyone knows how it works. Yeah. You do Top of the Pops. Yeah. You're on CD UK mm-hmm. and all, and, all, uh, and yeah. that programme plays videos on Saturday mornings. And everyone knows how it all works. And it's become more, much more about money. And also, all of those groups that were around then, funnily enough, were influenced by punk. Mm-hmm. You know, if you take Culture Club, Culture Club was an idealistic idea. Mm-hmm. You know, you had the drag queen, the Jewish guy, a black guy, and a white middle-class suburban boy. And that's why they called it Culture Club. It had an ideology. Right. Music tended to have an ideology right. in the 1980s. When Chris and I first started, you know, we were number one with Western girls. Chris's famous remarks were on top of the pops and the camera panned towards us. Chris hissed at me, don't look triumphant. Well, of course, nowadays you would routinely be triumphant. Right, right. You know, because you felt that you had some kind of integrity and that success wasn't the issue. Right, right. Great to have success, but success wasn't the issue. The issue was, wasn't it great to do something, in a, to do something great in a mass market and change things? Mm-hmm. In a Western town, a dead end world, the Eastern boys and Western I think that's spot on then, spot on now. Yeah. I mean, certainly the first half of the 80s felt fantastically exciting in a way. For me, I think things petered out a bit when indie became turned into a genre of music rather than the idea of independence. Yeah. See, indie for us may as well not have existed. Right. Mm. It wasn't an issue. Mm-hmm. For me, the story is the 80s, because we're the second half of the 80s. Right. The first half is gorgeous pop music yeah, yeah. that conquers the world. Yeah, yeah. The famous photograph of Boy George, Annie Lennox, taken for smash hits that becomes the cover of Newsweek in America. Yeah, amazing. An amazing moment. And the second half of the 80s is when dance music comes in. Mm. Suddenly, on top of the pops, there are people with turntables. Yeah. <laughs> Our future manager, Dave Durrell, big one. <laughs> and, and with Mars, pump up the right. volume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and we're part of that. We're mm. all remixes by Shep Pettibone sure. and Frankie Knuckles and yeah, what have yeah, you. Yeah. House music's come in, mm-hmm. changed everything completely. Mm-hmm. And in fact, by the end of the 80s, house music is the sound of pop. It's actually Stock Aiken and Watermark making a house-derived kind yeah. of pop music. Yes. Yeah. And that I, changes I, I, everything. Stock Aiken and Watermark also, to some degree, like yourselves, drew stuff from high NRG. Yeah, high NRG, yeah. yeah. Which, which, of course, comes from disco. That yes. was the last great... The late 70s, mm-hmm. as well as being punk, is yeah. also the great year of disco yes, sure. pop songs, yeah, yeah. which is a fantastic year of songwriting. Yeah, yeah. To this day, I think, underrated. Yeah, yeah. I love the, the fact that you were sentenced to interview the police and it was through that trip, the police who, whom you were bored. bored. <laughs> and, and, I didn't know But through that, you got to meet Bobby O. You went to... Yeah. You went and well, now I remember Mark, up. I was doing the Smash It's Your Book. <laughs> 1984 in 1983 and the police were the hugest thing and also it's a brilliant song Every Breath You Take an incredibly good record and anyway you had to go for one night to New York and we were obviously getting blasé at Smash It's because no one would go (laughs) and and I thought I'm not going to go I'm not a rock fan I never really listened to them and anyway my arm was twisted and I go and then, then I suddenly I said to Chris I could meet Bobby O. Now, the Bobby O thing comes partly out of Smash It. Mm-hmm. Chris hears, to this day, Chris would do this. Chris is the important person asks the DJ what the record is. Right. He hears this record. He asks the DJ, it's passion by the flirts. He buys it on import, costs £5. Mm-hmm. And he says, this is it. 
and so this become this record becomes a musical template. Ah. Anyway, right by my desk at Smash Hits is the Dumper Box, mm-hmm. where all this tsunami of records comes in every day. Most of them just go in the Dumper Box. After work, I'm such a mute pop fan. I will stay and go through the Dumper Box. <laughs> Dedication. Yeah, 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 fantastic. I discover a record by Phyllis Nelson. I phone up the PR and say, this record's amazing. It Move becomes close. number one. Move closer, yeah. Move closer. Yeah, yeah, I want yeah. to be over a record. It's in the dumper box. Anyway, I then discover, to my astonishment, all these records, and they're all produced by Bobby Orlando. Mm. And so I start taking them home and say, look, there's another Bobby Orlando. Mm-hmm. And then you may recall, over the road from Smash It's on the same side as the NME, there's a weird place which has got art, sort of plastic showgirls' legs going up and down, and they sell <laughs> yes. tourist crap. It's all coming back. Do you remember it? But yeah, they've, got, they've got a yeah. DJ. Right. The DJ plays Bobby O. Right. He keeps playing I'm So Hot For You, which, in an amazing moment, Dave Hepworth makes single of the week in Smash Hits, because he likes it as well. Yeah. And he compares him to Bruce Springsteen. And so all these things come together, so... I go to New York, do the police thing. Actually, it's quite amazing. They play Shea Stadium. And, mm-hmm. and, then all, and they're number one in America. Mm-hmm. The entire American rock journalist corps is sitting around. And the only person Sting talks to is me. And, when, and I say to him, you know, I went to the same school as you. So we talk about that. <laughs> we did go to the same school in Newcastle. So we talk about that. And then the next morning, I go and see Bobby O. I've, I've phoned him up, you know, and he said, hey, yeah, come around. And I go in there, he says, yeah, let's make a record. Yeah. And a month later, we're in the studio in New York making the original West End Girls. That's yeah. fantastic. And, and when I came back to Smash Hits, I told everyone I was going to meet Bobby. All Smash Hits people knew about Bobby. Mm-hmm. You know, right. If you ask Ian Birch or Mark Hamill, they'd all know this. And there was a sort of celebration in the office that I've met Bobby O. We're now going to make a record. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, That's and, and I won't let anyone mention this in Smash Hits. Uh-huh. The Pet Shop Boys, I won't mention, when the, when the name arrives, I won't mention it. It's only ever mentioned when I go on holiday. Someone puts a joking reference to it in the bit section. <laughs> <laughs> and then a month later, we come back and we record it. I'm too embarrassed to play it on Western Girls because I'm speaking on it. So I play them the three other tracks. And then Scoffer, David Bostock, one of the designers, I think now publishing director of the EMAP, <laughs> yes. makes copies of the tape for me and he says, hey, there's a great song where you sort of rap. And I said, oh, God, you haven't heard that one. <laughs> and he said, no, it's great. And, and that's sort of the beginning of that. That's fantastic. That is, that is incredible. That's really, that's really great. I mean, we, we have to talk about this. I mean, it, it, it's happened to some other writers who have, as it were, the poachers, turned gamekeeper. Or the other way around. I mean, it must have been extraordinary for you to be interviewing these seminal pop figures in in between 82 and and 85. And then, lo and behold, you're one of them. I think it was weirder for them. From my Mm -hmm. perspective, I've been writing songs since about 1967, actually, is the reality. So I'm quite an experienced songwriter. (laughs) This is what you're always aiming for. By 1982. Chris and I have met and started writing songs before I'm at Smash It's actually. Right. So I have two careers. Mm -hmm. I have my publishing stroke journalism career, which people say, what would you have done for Smash It's hadn't happened? I say, well, I'd probably work for Q. Mm -hmm. And because when I left, they wanted me to be editor of Smash It's actually. And it was quite a big thing to be offered that and to turn it down at the age of 31 to become a pop star. But anyway, it obviously worked out. But I know after that, I would you'd, you'd be at the San Remo Song Festival <laughs> and Duran are there and Spandau, yes. the Smiths, yeah, yeah, and Paul Weller. Paul Weller, I always remember saying to me because Wesley got to be number one in America by this point. He said, "God," he said, 
sort of amazed about that because they always, they always tell me I sound too British. And I said, well, that's what, I said, that's what they like about it. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds did, British. Did your experience as a writer help you when it came to dealing with interviews in the media later that on? That is the thing, because people always think... They used, you know, in the NME in the 80s, there's always a thing about perfect pop. Mm-hmm. And, and there was a certain amount of bullshit in that, I think, really. Mm-hmm. And people think, oh, you worked hard to write a perfect pop song. Uh, well, I mean... Any anyone could do that if they had the knack, yeah. uh, uh, or assuming there is such a thing as a perfect yeah, pop yeah. song. You don't have to be a journalist. The one thing I took away from it, which I still have to this day, is you can sort of see how the interview's going, yeah, because you've done it yourself, yeah, yeah. And so it would make me sometimes a bit tetchy, particularly in the eighties, <laughs> because we had a certain amount of hostility because I'd been a journalist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So people thought it was an authentic right. thing. Yeah, these, yeah. These, these are two clever guys yes. who are sort of playing the playing the industry a bit or something like yeah. that. And yeah. of course, it so wasn't like that. No, of course. So isn't like, I mean, right. uh, we're both in some ways quite naive, really, I think. And I think that's why we're still here. But so I would like mm. say, OK, that's the end of the interview. Turn, turn the cassette recorder off, throw it across the room at him. And uh, <laughs> because I could... T- I'd, <laughs> so, and then the PR would say, oh, you know, he's your biggest fan in Belgium. And uh, <laughs> and I just brought the interview to a halt for 10 minutes. And Because uh, I, I, I used to get paranoid about it. But you didn't, didn't you also realise... I, mean, I mean, I've read a lot of interviews with you in my job here. And you give good quotes consistently. Yeah. And... You, you must have known the value of giving good quote because I, I know that some journalists really. Str- I, I hear the, the taped interviews where the journalist is asking a question and they get kind of monosyllabic answers, and you knew how to kind of give them a lot of meat to put on. Yeah, but that's your perspective for looking at it. Okay. My perspective is I quite like talking about music. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and fair let's face it, I know a lot about the Petrol Boys. Um, <laughs> And also, Chris Lowe yeah. gives amazing quotes. Yes. We did an interview for The Guardian recently, which they took... It was so funny. Well, and actually... <laughs> I the, was laughing yes, The loud. funny quotes are from... <laughs> Chris gives this incredible quote, because this is where I turned back into a journalist, which I would write in the piece, <laughs> yeah. when he yeah. says, although Neil was an altar boy, he has no relationship with gospel music. <laughs> It's such a ridiculous <laughs> thing to say. Um, yeah, no, I, I, yeah. I, was, I was roaring with laughter. At um, that. And the brilliant quote that finishes the piece, this was Alexis, wasn't it? Alexis yes. Petrini. So you, you say something like, are we going to run out of ideas? That's when you call Brian Eno. Chris I always think Chris gives the really good quote. They're give, so dry, aren't they? I tend yeah. to, the way it works in Fuse with, with us is, I give the party line and the info. Right. And Chris just sits there and then puts gags in. All the way down. <laughs> but it's a great double act. No, you know, no, it is. Yeah, it is. It's, it's amazing. Uh, I mean, how long? I mean, it's how many years have Pet Shop Boys been? 35 years. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. But was... it's not contrived, though. It no. is. It's just the way it is. And it's pleasure. You still get enormous pleasure from doing it. Uh, well, I'll talk about interviews. I'd make the records, yes, writing songs. Yeah. I mean, we have... A lot of fun. You know, we have a studio in Berlin now. I say studio, I said earlier, it's just a little room a bit like this. I'm sure it's not like this. And, <laughs> and, it, and we sit there and it's, you know, it's, it's fun. Again, sometimes, sometimes nothing happens. We go out for dinner or lunch yeah, or something. Yeah. But you have, I mean, in this interview that we're running, the, the audio interview, you talk about having fun in the studio. Then oh. in 1996, yeah. you have fun in the studio and the process of making records is is, is inherently enjoyable process. Um, well, you know, tell you, on the way here, because we used to work in, in not far, Notting Hill Gate, mm-hmm. in Farm West, and throughout oh, yeah. the late 80s and the 
all the 90s, we worked consistently in songwise. And mm. I was just thinking, because it's now being developed into flats. That's right. And it was before that, you probably know it was Island Studios. Street, and yeah. They had a flat upstairs that both Jimi Hendrix and Bob Marley had lived in. <laughs> and, uh, and it was sort of Trevor Horn's little place. Yes. Yes. That was a great... I always like being involved in an organisation. I always miss, in a way, having a proper job. I right. used to love going to Smash Hits. Mm-hmm. And it was such fun. And the conversation was good. And we had music playing and stuff. Likewise, going into Psalm West, you know, you'd know the person on reception. There was a woman who ran Travis Bisco called Lola, we used to know. Mm-hmm. And downstairs, there was Marco, the Italian chef, who became Madonna's chef. And then at 10.30, they'd serve Jamaican food, where amazingly it was served by Lucky Gordon. Really? No. From, the, oh, Lucky Lucky Gordon. the Lucky yeah. Gordon. So when we were making Nothing Has Been Proved for Tom Scandal, <laughs> I said to Lucky, there's a line that goes... It's a scandal. Can you come in and say that? But he wanted, I can't remember, someone, a lot of money. he wanted 50 grand or something. Was 50. <laughs> and I said, we can't pay that. And I was watching the TV series recently. Yeah. I yeah. thought it was cheeky of me to have asked him that, really. Because when you see what you went through, yeah, yeah. it's not just a bit of fun, no, really. Fair. No, that's, that's, uh, that's fair enough. And, and actually, it was sort of, it suddenly occurred to me, it didn't occur to me before, that it was a bit cheeky of me to ask them that. And then you had the Jamaican food, and then you'd then George Michael would be always in the studio. Yes. And his dog, Hippie, wandering around. <laughs> and, and other artists, you yeah. know, Paul Morley might suddenly appear. And it was a really fantastic time. Fantastic. If we jump forward to the 90s when the audio interview was done by Stephen Daly, we've included this piece where you celebrate the power of negative thinking or or hate. Let's just call it hate. You (laughs) you celebrate hate. It's very funny. And so this was for details originally i think you said published in details in america yes, it was. and yeah. stephen was stephen daly was doing the interview for details with you and it, i suddenly realized you were talking about the bilingual album and i I, yeah. I actually reviewed that for rolling stone and in this piece you take a huge dig at rolling stone which is very funny uh, <laughs> it all kind of some Revenge. strange serendipitous way yes you, you say you talk about the people who are in control of the music business now are conservatives who think that in the six everyone was much more talented than they are now it's all about rolling stone rock culture which is essentially a fear of the new rolling stone's idea of a musician is jerry garcia (laughs) Um, look at all the new artists curtis steigers michael bolton lenny kravitz all of them living in the past hard to argue with that i'm afraid it is hard to argue with that shall we hear the third well this is this is really interesting because i think a lot of people perceive you as being ironic in verse commas. And, and you flatly... Well, write it's a curse for us because yes, we've yeah. written... I've got the brains, you've got the looks, there's lots yeah. of money, yeah. which is basically a punk song, yeah. and it's ironic. Yeah. There are a few other ironic things. But, the but cover you're... of the U2 thing is sort of ironic. Right. But generally, mm. we are actually sort of heartbreakingly hard yeah. I think, a lot of the time. Let's listen to this clip. That is the thing that uh, we're talking about Britain in the last 10 years, culture. When we first started, we occasionally did ironic songs like uh, Let's Melt of Money uh, or Shopping. And now irony is, is the mainstream of popular culture in terms of TV and music. Humour is irony. 
and it's just boring mm-hmm. uh, because actually it's a it's it's a way for people of not actually being funny. They're just kind of ironic, you know, the raised eyebrows. Right, right. And, uh, and I must say, I'm, I'm really, really fed up with that. Well, I personally think that I don't know if it was when you were there. I but think, by the way, it's one of the reasons that um, that Britpop doesn't work in America. It's because it's so ironic. Right. And, and you can't do irony in America. In well, America. It's too big a it's too big a, a market. And it's interesting r- that only Oasis who are not remotely ironic, right. who are completely not ironic or anti ironic really, they are the ones that have had success in America because they are definitely not ironic. And when we had a hit with Let's Lots of Money in America in the eighties, which was in the top ten in America, I was I think it was taken ironically. I think kind of like born in the USA. I think it was a bit of a yeah, let's go for it guys. Bobby O said to us, this is exactly what I think about everything. And we were like, well, we just used to carry on. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, I think at that period, I'm paranoid about Jarvis. Right. You do right. talk about Jarvis common in people, the interview. Common People comes out... Common People is a sort of an amazing Pet Shop Boys record. Yes, mm. yes, that's a, a, yes. And so is Disco Two Thousand. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, definitely. And so I feel a bit paranoid because yeah. there's always been new Pet Shop Boys, right? But they've never been. I mean, as I used to say to people, you know, they've made records for longer than we have because yeah. they have. They started yeah. in Man as you want, and they make a really amazing. Pet Shop Boys record in a way. I mean, no, they won't think of it like that. Yeah, of course. But I think I feel a bit paranoid. About yeah, no, it's interesting. That part and Damon, of course, is doing. Yes, I mean, charming yeah. man, all uh, those kind of things. I mean, that paranoia has sort of always been slightly been there. In you. I mean, in this interview, you talk about when you first heard Blue Monday, mm. and it kind of puts chill down. If you thought because they've beaten us to it, yeah, they've beaten us to it. We did think that, yeah, yeah. Uh, we uh, thought we were the only people mm-hmm. who knew. Because the music business is so sort of heterosexual, mm-hmm. even though it's the world of boy George and Mark Arm at the same mm-hmm. time. Yeah, yeah. We knew the secret of gay disco. <laughs> and we'd actually written this little demo studio. We'd written this... And it was called I'm Keeping My Fingers Crossed. I'm Keeping My <laughs> Fingers Crossed. And then this record comes in, in the amazing artwork. Yes, the yes, yeah. Which is always a huge deal for us, the yeah. artwork. And I just felt like burst into tears. And I said to Chris, oh, I mean, these gloom merchants. Yeah. <laughs> How dare they? Yeah. <laughs> How have they done this? Yeah. How do they know about this? Yeah. And then they go and make a record with Arthur Baker. Yes. Who And I'm obsessed by Planet Patrol and all this yeah, yeah, this sure. time. Mm. And anyway, mm. <laughs> it all works out. But, um, <laughs> but it, was, it was a big moment. And then when we got to know... Bernard, we it was interesting. We had very very similar record collections. Right, Bernard and Chris and me. Yeah, mm. we had very. He liked tallow disco. Yeah, and, absolutely. I mean, someone. I remember Betty Bates, the record Miriam Fingers, very early on. She thought we'd invented Italian disco as a sort of joke. <laughs> <laughs> and she didn't know the records. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and uh, and again, it was thanks to the Dumper Boxes. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, like La Bionda and all that. Sort yeah. Of stuff. Whenever I mean, some of the early interviews with New Order. The first thing they did when they went to New York was go down to the Paradise. Garage. I mean, first them, thing we did. Yeah, exactly. You yeah. know, Larry Levan and that. Just, That's, it was amazing. Just fantastic stuff. I, I like what you say about ultimately not being ironic and even being 
a little naive, I think, is, yeah. is it's because it doesn't matter how clever and beautifully packaged and conceptualised pop is, if it doesn't have a heart, it doesn't endure, I think. Exactly. And some of my favourite songs, I mean, I've, I've been very moved by, by Pet Shop Boys songs. I'm thinking of things like Young Offender, In Denial. They're very, very moving and deeply felt. Well, they're, they're songs that come out of experience and truth. Exactly. And that is... To the, our latest album, mm-hmm. Hotspot, you know, mm-hmm. it's sort of inspired by, by spending a lot of time in Berlin. Yeah. And again, there's there's a lot of personal truth mm-hmm. in that, yeah. which I'm always uncomfortable talking about, really. But nonetheless, it's there. Mm-hmm. It's definitely there. I also think your delivery, because your delivery is so unique in sort of pop mm-hmm. music, and yet it fits perfectly with the music. This is an extraordinary thing. This is not dead, it's not deadpan delivery, but it's sort of was kind of wistful sort of it is and it's a contrast often to the mm. music mm-hmm. which is often very lush or it's dance music mm-hmm. it's very up dance music yeah. chris is often the player that i take something up and make it down right but then i kind of think that's what we do yeah and someone called our music and we nearly called an album happy sad because because yeah. they said that's some italian journalist said that's what we made yeah and, I, and that's the contrast between the two personalities yeah yeah, yeah. We should mention, of course, in addition to Hotspot, that came out in January. Next month sees the reissue of the two great books that the great Chris Heath wrote about you. <laughs> I've actually got my original copy of a wonderful cover, wonderful photograph, wonderful photographer. I loved this book when it came out. I loved Chris's relationship with you guys his his take on what Pet Shop Boys meant. just calling it Pet Shop Boys versus America was, was, was rather, <laughs> rather bold um, just, just tell us briefly about the two books literally and versus well, America well Chris Heath of course came out of so Chris Heath joined Smash Hits I think about 84 and I remember and Mark Ellen brought him in mm-hmm. I don't know where he met him to do a sort of Christmas flexi disc or something like that we did. Which was, <laughs> flexi disc. I might have got that wrong, but it's something like yeah. that. And then he started writing for us and and he was such a pop fan. But then we really got to know, then I left because he interviewed us mm-hmm. for Smash Hits. And I'd always been obsessed by this book about the Beatles called Love Me Do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Michael Braun. Yeah. And, you know, you could see that in second-hand bookshops, you see the paperback, the Penguin paperback. It's, it's about the Beatles early in 63, I think. And he goes on tour with yeah. them. And, you know, he interviews sort of Paul and Ringo and they're, share, they're in bed sharing a room yeah. in, in single beds, I hasten to find. <laughs> yeah, it's and, like Eric and Ernie. <laughs> <laughs> and Dave Rimmer did a two-part interview with Culture Club in Japan for Smash mm, That's yes. right, yes. And I suggest I had links with Faber and Faber, the publishers, who actually published my lyrics whenever it was here before. Yeah. And I said, why don't we do this as a book and I'll sell it to Faber. Mm. And it's going to be like that Michael Brown book, Let mm. Me Do. And Pete Townsend was the music editor then at Faber. Mm. And so That's I right. sell him this book. And it, like Punk Never Happened, it's uh-huh. it's a very good book. In fact, they're, they're going to reissue it. You came up with that phrase, I gather. Well, it came from an interview with Paul Weller, where mm. I was 
And this is interesting thing about you don't expect this in splashes because people always think it's about the colour of your socks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something's never mentioned in splashes, actually. Mm-hmm. It's always like, what colour is Tuesday? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not the colour of your socks. It's more psychedelic than that because yeah. uh, of Tom Hibbert. And I'm having a go at Paul Weller about money. And Paul Weller says something like, it's like punk never right. happened. Yeah. He's slagging off Spandau Ballet. <laughs> And 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 those you know that that breed of of contemporary pop star, and for, and this phrase sort of I think he doesn't even say it's like punk Ham, but that phrase mm-hmm. entered the smash hits lexicon from this interview, and then Dave right towards the end of writing this book said, why don't we just call it it's like punk never happened? And, you, and I think you sort of then rewrote the opening chapter. Yeah, and it was it was a great it was a good time. I think the subtitle was was Culture Club and the New Pop. Am yeah, I right? because by the time we'd finished it, you were suddenly aware that maybe the era had come to an end. Mm-hmm. Live Aid was a big thing. Yeah. Now at Live Aid, Duran Duran, they had the power station and everything. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, yeah. it felt like the whole thing yeah. got so big it was going to fall apart. Uh, and, and it did. And also... Older acts suddenly got resurrected by it. And Older acts started making videos. Yes. And Americans mm-hmm. suddenly are taking over. Madonna has taken yes. over. Whitney Houston's about to appear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Prince is amazing yes. and makes amazing videos. Yeah, yeah. And no one can touch him musically. Yeah. So there's the sort of the writings on the wall a bit. And that's why even at that point we could see that maybe this was in a way an elegy for a pop period. Annoyingly, because when we sold the book to Pete Townsend, mm-hmm. for quite a big advance actually, it was inconceivable at the end of 1984 that Culture Club could go, as we would say, down the dumper, because mm. they were like the Beatles. Mm. By the time the book came out, they were. It was for a while anyway. Mm-hmm. Over. Yeah, yeah, fantastic book. I love. I rip Dave's great. Yeah. Terrific. Anyway, that's coming out again as well. So anyway, so Chris Heath, so Michael Braun, let me do. Mm. Uh, you know, I only have one idea. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Let's do Michael Ball and WT with the Pet Shop Boys now. Yeah. And so Chris, he starts following us around. The first book, Pet Shop Boys, literally, about our first tour, is a bit more earnest. Mm-hmm. It's got analysis right. as well as reportage. Mm-hmm. The second book, where we go to tour America with this ridiculous theatrical show, which is designed for arenas and now crammed in small theatres. Right. So dancers are changing on the sidewalk mm. in certain cities. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and Chris Heath and Penny Smith are there. Yeah. And there's no analysis. It's simply reportage. That's fantastic. And as I said in the new introduction, if, I'm, if I don't think I said in that one, we've got Chris Heath's got his notebook. Everyone just gets used to the fact that they're having a conversation. Chris Heath is standing between you writing it down. Yeah. And um, <laughs> actually, it still happens because we do a, a book every year, you know, called Petra Wars Annually. Oh, is that right? Uh, yeah, and Chris <laughs> he still does it. <laughs> We've been doing this over 30 years now. And, um, Amazing. Chris and I, Chris Lowe and I, I think, start playing up to the, the notebook a little bit. Yeah. Because sure. it's, it's been written down. <laughs> Although there are times, even now, we'll be having a conversation in a car going somewhere and we'll have a, having fun. Chris Lowe will say, Oh, where's Chris Heath? This, we're just wasting this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If Chris isn't writing it down, it, it Don't never happens. It yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's Fantastic. brilliant. And then, of course, he goes on and does the John Williams books. And, and our books are actually, he does the map, gives us the manuscripts. And I'm afraid we cut out every swear word. Oh, God, disappointing. Any reference to sex, probably, yeah. etc. And whereas he then does Robbie Williams. <laughs> yeah. And Robbie Williams doesn't cut out 
anything. Because <laughs> have you read those two audios? No, I, no. I know what Chris Heath is like, and he's got a project. I think we can expect another one in 10 years' time, no matter where Robbie's career is, because he's going to have this monumental Balzac-esque, you know, <laughs> cycle of books about someone's whole career. Right. And it'll be incredible. Yeah. And Robbie so, yeah. doesn't edit himself. We right. do edit ourselves. Yeah, OK. That's, that's even while we're speaking sometimes. <laughs> and also, or we'll say, that's not going in the book. Right. And, but Robbie doesn't have that. So, right. So this style reached its full fruition in those two roles. Well, it doesn't films. surprise me because he's been incapable of editing himself in his life. <laughs> well, <laughs> he's, he's a gift to, yeah, sure. to someone like Chrissy. Pet Shop Boys have endured... For such a, a long time, it's it's extraordinary how you stay relevant, stay vibrant, and continue to enjoy what you're doing. In a way, we can move into a sort of subsequent era of British pop culture, talking about Andrew Weatherall, if you wouldn't mind. I'd be interested to know... So we lost Andrew Weatherall last Sunday, and he represented a new... Chapter. I mean, along with a, a bunch of other yes. people, Danny Rampling, etc. Yeah, yeah. This was a kind of new chapter in sort of club culture, drug culture, etc. Especially in in London, Manchester, and other cities. Do you remember how you felt when all that was happening? You know, Acid House, and then going to the Boys Own era. Yes. Not Boys Own, the boy band. No, no, yes, <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. Well, I mentioned earlier, everything changed with house music. Mm. Started. Absolutely. And house music had a hit. I think the first hit is Love Can't Turn Around. Jack Master. Jack Master. Funk. Farley. Farley Jack Master. Daryl. Daryl Pandy. Yes. Daryl Pandy. There you Pandy. go. Daryl Pandy. He was the same. So in 1988, yeah. we bring our... In, in 1987, our album, actually, the first album, One More Chance, has got kind of a house piano thing. It's mm. right, right starts with that. And as I said, that comes the sound of pop music. In 1989, Chris and I go to Manchester because Bernard Sumner, mm -hmm. who knows our designer, who's a Manchester Mark Farrow, mm -hmm. is making a solo album. And I'd said, tell Bernard Sumner I'll do something with him, the collaboration if he wants. And then Bernard says, yes. Now I panic. I said, Chris, you've got to come. <laughs> and so we both drive up and we meet Bernard. And then he discovers he's doing it with Johnny Moore. So this is electronic. So this and this, this is Getting electronic, yeah. But at this point, it's Bernard's solo album. Mm. And it takes him a while to define that it's yeah. going to be a pop duo called Electronic. So we go with... So the first time we go to the Hacienda is with Bernard. And this is as the Manchester thing is exploding. Right. And that's... You know, we probably have mixed feelings about it because there's a sort of a sense that some people think that Manchester's invented this whole thing. <laughs> and... <laughs> And you think, oh, you know, we were in the Paradise Garage six mm. years ago. Yeah. And so there's sort of competitiveness about that. But nonetheless, it's an amazing thing. Mm. And we love it. And mm. we go there quite a lot. And over the next few years, we do a concert for Derek Jarman, actually, weirdly, right. at the Hacienda. That era, you know, we're influenced by the funky drummer loop. Mm -hmm. Being boring based, you know, starts with the funky drummer loop. As to it being more... In, I think we just felt we were sort of distantly part of it yeah. rather than influence. I think we felt we'd been on the same journey right. rather than thinking, oh, this is 
yeah amazing yeah mm-hmm. uh, which we did we did like the mm-hmm. records and the happy mondays mm-hmm. and uh, which was the first thing that that weatherall did i believe yes. was the hallelujah remix yes when he'd never even been in a studio really didn't know what he was doing oh. and i think that's probably why those remixes particularly loaded the primal screen one were so new and and, well, and fresh i mean it's interesting that when primal screen kind of reverted to type for their following album mm-hmm. they just became a another rock band again. Um, almost a parody. Almost a parody, absolutely. I've always loved that song, Rock Soft. Yes. But <laughs> at the time, I yeah. said, this is like the Ruttles for the Rolling Stones. Yeah. Um, and also, I was always amazed when the first hit single, yeah, yeah. Bobby doesn't sing on it, really. No, no, it's right. Because yeah. it's a remix. He shakes maracas yeah. up. And, and there's that a, is, a one-line song. Sort of, from yeah. the emotion. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Like, I don't want to lose but, your love. But, yeah. but, um, no, I mean, so Andrew Weatherall, I like where he renamed himself Andrew Weatherall. None of yes. this Andy he, stuff. He's still you know. Andy at the time. Uh, and he, of, and, he is, yes. Well, yes. this one hates the hipster beard. He had the real thing. Mm. He, had, he ended up with this magnificent beard and stuff. Looking like sort of you know, 19th century sort of sh- ship's captain. I think he was the sort of ur uh, hipster. Well, you know, he'd, he'd probably hate Maybe. you. He'd, he'd probably hate you. So every, I know, because I've been conveyed via Bill Bruce and Frank Broughton's sort of yeah. dance culture in the last sort of 20 years of my life. I know a lot of people who know him. I never met him myself, and no one has a bad word to say about him. Apparently, mm-hmm. he is just the sweetest, funniest man. And when he died, my Facebook feed was just a yeah. wash with. I mean, in a well, way that I've never seen. There's before. been a real outpouring yeah. of grief. Well, probably because he's so young, fifty, very young. You know, no, I was, I was horrified. So, yeah. as part yeah. of our tribute to him, we're including the audio interview that Bill Brewster yes. did with him in 2009. So, I thought maybe we'd just listen to a minute of that just to remember Andrew. Obviously, there's a certain amount of kind of um, ego because it's quite exciting to play records when you've yeah. kind of seen a room full of people kind yeah. of light up in that way. I mean, yeah. is that was that an attractive thing as well when you start? Um, n- um, not to start with, because the, the, you know a lot of the time DJ was one step above bottle washer. You know, it was only when it started, you know, people started, people were so desperate for heroes that they thought DJs would be good ones, you know what I mean? And I, I'll be honest with you, I did kind of fall for it a bit, hook, line and sinker, because being such a big music fan, you know, buying the enemy and the magazines, all of a sudden you find yourself in them, it can tap turn a young man's head. And it, it, I, I did go a bit silly for quite a number of years, you know, then you throw the obvious drug into the equation as well which is super-duper ego-expanding yeah, powder. Yeah. And, um, yeah, you do, you do, you do get sucked. You know, I, 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 I don't sympathise with people that go on that Star Trek, but I can empathise with them. I mean... You know, it's a really endearing interview, actually. comes over really well in it. And he is someone who experienced this extraordinary sort of cult yeah. acclaim and then slowly sort of pulled back from yeah. it, kind of yeah. grew up and became a much more appealing he, character. No, he could have been Fat Boy Slim. He could have been a superstar DJ. He could have still been what we now call the EDM circuit in America, playing Las Vegas for vast amounts of money. Never wanted to do that. Mm. You know, it was actually... Antithetical to everything that he believed. A well, DJ also that's a be. different. I think that's a different generation, really. Uh, DJ. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, 
He'd certainly be, you know, he'd have fitted with the fat boy slim generation of superstar DJs. Big, big if, boys, if, yes. if, if, if he'd chosen yes. to. Anyway, good man. You know, I can take some of his mixes because they always tend to have the same groove, which actually kind of, you know, we played a whole bunch in the off center, and it's all that slightly baggy match to groove. I think they yeah. dated a little bit, actually, funny enough, in yeah. a way that some of the more sort of electronic remixes yeah. of that period hasn't. But what I liked about him, and this comes through in the audio, this is actually just how eclectic his taste was. You mm. know, he, he really was, you know, he mentions... I mean, there's a, one of the pieces that we're featuring is a, is a piece by Push from 91, and he's so did the whole Primal Scream, Screamadelica thing is, is very, very new at this point. And he, he talks about, of all things, he talks about Tom Waits' Kentucky Avenue in this piece, which you really wouldn't expect, as well as talking about yeah. Balearic Boom and all kinds of other things and Terry Farley and so forth. But he comes over really, really well in it. And I... And it, and it made me realise just just actually how... He, he says he was never even in the studio at the same time as Primal Screen. That's right. He was working on that stuff. I mean, I do love that record. It's obviously not all just him. Jimmy Miller, of course, produces mm. Moving On Up. And they all do that incredible mix of mm. Higher Than The Sun. But, I mean, it's an exciting time, that kind of birth of kind of indie dance out of, out of Manchester, I suppose, and... Remixes of Happy Mondays and, and, and so forth. And you've outlived all of that. You 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 have somehow survived <laughs> and outlived every every new iteration of kind of youth quakery. <laughs> I think it's because right at the beginning our aim was only to be part of our own thing. Yes. yes. And you could bring people mm. in it. So you could find yourself in a studio with Johnny Marr mm-hmm. or yeah. Liza Minnelli. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, it, and it made equal yeah. sense. The project no. was big enough to include those things. And and that's how we... So in, in Britpop, Chris and I bring out Bilingual, which has got lyrics in Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're not... We yeah. do follow the latest dance mm. fashion to an extent. Sure. But... We don't follow necessarily. Right. The, we, we always swim against the tide. Very, I think very successfully, because certainly the way I've always perceived it has been in a completely separate place to everything else that was going on in the mainstream at the time. Mm. I think that's probably how we perceive it as well. Yeah. Are you comfortable with being a kind of national institution then? <laughs> national yeah, treasure. The national treasure. <laughs> national treasure. Yeah. That's, if we are, that, I think. It's a little more uneasy than that. Yeah, I mean, like madness or a national treasure. Right. Mm-hmm. The Pet Shop Boys sort of are, but it's not. I don't think it's quite as straightforward as that. Right. Um, what are the albums that you're proudest of from the last, say, twenty years? I love the last three albums we've made yeah. with Stuart Price because for the first time we became electronic purists. We've yeah. never been before. Every album yep. has mm. got acoustic instruments on it before right. that. Or, and, and we've mm-hmm. had long flirtation with orchestras on our album yeah, Trevor yeah. Horn, which I love, by yes. the way, mm-hmm. in, in, for mid noughties. There's an orchestra, I think, on every track apart from yeah. right. one. Yeah. So with this, we went, we went back to a basics we'd never really had mm-hmm. of, of, of being electronic purists. Mm-hmm. And I've always loved electronic music. Yeah. It's we're talking about the basic electronic sounds always thrilled yeah. me. Yeah. yeah. Um, if I hear the stop, I feel love now. I'm still going to love it. Yeah. I'm afraid, yeah. Even though it's. 45 years old or something now. And so I'm very proud of those three albums. I probably don't necessarily think in terms of albums. What I'm proud of is this catalogue of songs we've 
yes. we've, we've written yes. and recorded mm -hmm. yes. over this period of time. Yeah. And also how they're a sort of social history mm -hmm. of... So the first albums are spoofing Thatcherism. Yeah. By the time we get to 2006, where having a go at New Labour yeah. over ID cards and things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And by the, you know, we did an EP last year called Agenda of political songs. Absolutely. What are we going to do about the rich? Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and so there is a sort of a, a social history element to the right. Pet Shop Boys. Yes. Well, we should, that I can't help yeah. being there because it's all around us Absolutely. and I'm always influenced by current But events. also a 35-year career allows that yes. in yeah. a way that most pop careers, which have yes. been and gone within yes. four years, let's say, yes. uh, don't. But if, if you can sustain what you do for that sort of period of time, that allows that to become that, a social history, mm. absolutely. Mm. Well, it's been such a joy talking Thank with you, you about it. Smash Hits and about Pet Shop Boys and, uh, well, the whole history of, yeah. of British pop culture. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for, for coming in I, I, and, and I, I, answering I'll, these questions. I'll but whisk we'll, through a few of the things that's coming we'll do, do some whiskey. Well, well yes. um, Alan Walsh interviewing Scylla <laughs> Black, Melody Maker, 65, and she says... What's happened to all the songwriters? All I seem to get these days are poor imitations of Bacharach. Wasn't it Bacharach who said one of his favourite versions of one of his songs was? No, Just Silla Black. Oh, it was actually Randy Newman. Randy Newman said his favourite version of his one of his songs was Silla Black's. She really cared about the songwriters. And Bert Bacharach, favourite recording of his entire career, still singing Alfie. And you, in the audio interview with Stephen Daly, funny enough, he mentions Brill Building, and you say something very I, that I really liked about Brill Building pop, which is that is the great Brill Building songs, in which we include mm -hmm. Backrack and also tangentially Randy Newman on the West Coast. He said that the great thing about them is that they're simple but sophisticated. I think even now, when you get a songwriting team that produces a song like Happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That is simple but sophisticated. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's also a Northern it's so Soul banger. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, I mean, it's a sort of yeah. a Holy Grail song. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm Talking about songwriting, very briefly, Jimi Hendrix, record Mirror 67, says, I can't write no happy songs. Foxy Lady's about the only happy song I've written. I don't feel very happy when I start writing. And this is curious, because I don't listen to Jimmy's lyrics much, because that's not why I listen to Jimmy. I listen to this extraordinary sort of maelstrom of sound. But his lyrics were pretty miserable. But, the, at the, but at the time he said that and written that song, 67, by all accounts, he was as happy as Larry. He was having the time of his life. But it's a well-known fact, when you're a songwriter, yeah. the most difficult thing to write is something happy. Yes. It, it is luck, in yeah. some ways, to come up with a very simple, happy idea yeah, yeah. that doesn't just sound banal. Well, yeah. Whereas moody music yeah, yeah. with interesting chords yeah. is, is to do. easier to <laughs> do. Yeah, yeah. What's the um, happiest song you've ever written? Well, we didn't write most of it. Say Avida. Say Avida, right. Say Avida, um, and that's yeah. based that's on, on a Brazilian... Bilingual, yes. Yeah, so it's based on, on, a, on a Brazilian song. And then probably the bit I've put in is the middle bit, which is, which is actually quite sad. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but, you know, Jimi Hendrix, you mentioned the lyrics. I never thought of Jimi Hendrix as a songwriter until Rod Stewart yes. covered... Was it Angel? Angel. Yeah. 
That's a beautiful song. Yes, it is. I'm a huge Jimi Hendrix fan. Just, yeah. Just, you know, and he was a marvellous songwriter when he was given the time and the space to do it. And unfortunately, the last two years of his career has been flogged to death on a road by his manager. He was, that's and, right. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 and his songwriting literally went right down the toilet. Moving swiftly on to Caroline Boucher, 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 Boucher in yeah. disc nine, or uh, Boucher, Boucher, Boucher. <laughs> uh, 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 d- disc in nineteen seventy four. She's interviewing Stacia, the dancer with Hawkwind. Oh yeah, <laughs> and she says that Stacia is a whole heap of women who got on, up on stage with no clothes on to dance with Hawkwind three years ago, and has never really got down or put her clothes back on since. <laughs> I, I saw Hawkwind a couple of times back in the day, and she was a fairly terrifying prospect. I, can I tell you, <laughs> almost. <laughs> The traumatic experience. <laughs> well, reason. nonetheless, <laughs> she was she was sort of what Hawkwind are famous for. Really. Well, that, her and Lemmy, you know. Yeah. In fact, when I saw was them, Lemmy and Hawkwind, yeah, oh, yes, yeah. Oh, yeah. I realised. Um, and I was appallingly, I was roging for the Global Village Trucking Company. They were supporting Hawkwind at the Edmonton Sundance in 1973. And Silver Machine had just been a hit. Great record. It's a fantastic record. Yeah. And, 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 and Lemmy's with them. Stace is doing her stuff. And that's the last time I took acid for about 35 years because I looked at this audience full of, like, 14-year-old kids all tripping, and I thought, I can't be part of this anymore, oh. you know? So, like, 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 helped, the, helped the, the, the AC-30 into the back of the van and gave it all up for the sort of 35 years. But anyway, so that was this one you want to talk about, I will mm. quote the first paragraph. This is Michael Watts interviewing Laura Nero. 1976 was a melody maker. And his opening paragraph was walking back down the icy path just before midnight, crunching frozen lumps underfoot. I felt warm with the realisation not only had she cooked steaks and played for me, but she had kissed me gently goodbye. It was not bad going for a reporter and a woman who had been a recluse for three years. Which is a slightly dicey start to what you think is actually a really fabulous interview. Well, I mean, I, I never read this at the time, mainly being an NME reader at that point, but I, I think Melanie Maker had a lot of incredible writers yeah. and Michael Watts was probably one of, one of the best. I mean. But Michael Watts goes, goes, to inter- goes up to Connecticut to interview Laura. Yeah. I mean, I'm a huge Nero fan and it was a sort of missing piece of the jigsaw for me because this album Smile has just come out and it's just a great Michael Watts PC. First off, he goes to see Sid Bernstein, the legendary Sid Bernstein who put on, you mentioned Shea Stadium. The Beatles, yeah. He put on that show at Shea yeah. Stadium and, and he essentially has been responsible for bringing Laura back from, from sort of, not the wilderness really, but it's just a lovely piece, a great album. And she says some just interesting things in it. She looks back on the era when David Geffen was managing her. Well, what I think is I was a very, very young female. It was always a situation of young female commodity being handled by a sugar daddy. And now it's a laugh because I would never allow that anymore. And she mentions the fact that as she's working, as as she was recording Smile, her, her mother died at the age of 49. So her grief... It kind of inhabits mm-hmm. this, this record. I think it's a pretty great record. I think all the records that Nero made in the late I love 60s, the one with LaBelle. LaBelle, going to take a miracle. It's a great so record. that had been the previous record, yeah. which was a yeah. which was a very upbeat sort yeah. of celebration yeah. of kind of street corner do yeah, and, right, and yeah. girl groups and stuff. And are you a Nero fan? I, that's but the that album I know one. best. Yeah. But, uh, but oh, you may recall Bob Streisand, I think, had two hits with Laura Nero's yeah, songs. Absolutely um, she did. They're, they're unique, those songs. To no, me. they are. There's, she's got her own melodic mm. yeah. style. Mm. And 
harmonic thing and everything. Yeah. I know you're something of a Joni fan. I love Joni, Hajira, yes. I think, particularly. It's, it's Hajira for me, yeah. And <laughs> I, it's, I think it's notable that, that, that Nero is one of the only female singer-songwriters from the 60s that, that Joni will acknowledge as as an equal if not even an influence mm-hmm. will she um, wow. yeah no she does she you know she gives she gives she pays pays her dues she pays her respects to to laura but anyway i i love that yeah. piece it's a long a long kind of profile what's next june 83 rich williams and you and myself as it happened all saw curtis mayfield not together by the way no not together. didn't know each other then i believe we were in the commonwealth institute we together in the commonwealth institute of all places <laughs> to see curtis mayfield you've got I remember it vividly as these glass cases full of shrunken heads and things like that, you know. And there's Curtis and you know Master Henry Gibson with his bongos. Yeah. I, I I just loved it, and, and mm. Richard Williams loved it too. Even though he thought the acoustics of the place were hopeless and so on, he says while his young musicians obviously enjoyed themselves in dense churning versions of three songs from Mayfield's score for the 1972 black exploitation movie Superfly, and in a lengthy and deliriously rhythmic treatment of the previous year's Move On Up featuring enjoyable work from percussionist Henry Gibson. A relaxed reading, reading of Give Me Your Love provided a vehicle for the leader's unique gospel infant style, thumb-picking lead guitar. Mm. I, I always like Richard Williams's writing. I think he's, mm. he's terrific. And I also like, personally like a lot of what he writes about because we're both fairly obsessed with African-American but music. Was it Richard who got Curtis Mayfield on the old grey whistle test? I think it might it have may, been may, extraordinary. It, 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 he was a great presenter of that. He, he yeah. never thought he so. He hated it. He hated it. Ah, yeah, I was like... Yeah. Think, and of course... My generation liked him because he championed Roxy Music. Absolutely, and virtually signed them to Ireland. Whereas Bob Harris thought they were cold and calculated. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. That's really probably what I remember Rich Williams for most. He became a sports writer, didn't he? Yes. Well, among yeah, other things, yeah, 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 he did. The Guardian's chief sports writer And a big one on Formula One, which he now despises. Yes. Um, but, but he was a very good writer on the subject. Yeah. Interesting to what we were doing from earlier. Bernard Sumner from New Order being interviewed by Push on about the Hacienda. This is the 10th year, this is 1992, it's the 10th anniversary celebration. And he says, it costs time as well as money. I sometimes think that if I could turn back the clock, I wouldn't do it again. And I just read the other day that apparently the Hacienda lost about £18 million over its entire life, you know. And that was New Order's money. Was it? All it, was all, it was financed from their money. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. know they can be... Not bitter, but a little bit. A little bit mm. about it. Although surprising, they did sell the building. Well, that's true. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> that was actually going to be my question because it's now um, the Athienda apartments, apartments, a new it? building, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, so I don't know. You know what? What? That, that, well, they what sold that. the plot of land. I yeah, I, yeah, I don't. I yeah. don't know anything yeah. about it. But yeah. but yeah, no, it was. But I mean. It was sort of an amazing thing to do. I, don't, um, well, I mean, I went a couple of times. I was in a band in the late eighties, and our management was sort of associated with it to some extent. And I hated the acoustics of the place. Mm. I, it, everything yes. sounded when we played, horrible. When we played, the acoustics were well. It was sort of hard. Yeah, like very echoing. hard, cavernous-sounding yeah. room. That's um, right. Yes. And I think if you're going to do something like that, which is to some extent we were talking about earlier, based on things like the Paradise Garage, the yeah. idea of a sort of large yeah. club, is the one thing you do is you get it sounding yeah. right. Mm. Uh, yeah. and, and they really did. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, it's very handsome, the way in which they're designed. It's beautiful, yes. Yeah, yes. But, but Kelly. I was at the opening night for my sins. Were you? The very wow. opening night when ESG played. Oh, ESG. We went up in I a... I didn't even know ESG. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was a sort of a 
proverbial coach load of London journalists being bussed up there, and I don't, I don't remember much more about it. I'm just sort of staggering back into the dawn of Paddington the next morning. <laughs> um, last thing I'm going to do is, is Simon Price. It's actually a, a live review of Prince Melody Maker in '95, but Chaka Khan comes on and does a couple of tunes, and he said, "I've always had a secret thing about Chaka Khan. I think it's her physical abundance." like a walking harvest of the fruits of the earth. As if when she says, I'm every woman, she means it. They're all in there trying to get out. Well, that's great. <laughs> a cornucopia of legs. Which I, I, I thought was a terrific bit of writing. And, and, and I mean, also, I love Shaka Khan yeah. too, so, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and her fruits of the earth. So how about you? What else? What have you got else? Well, well I, I, I think it's probably time to wrap up, so I'll just briefly mention a couple of pieces that, I, that really caught my eye. One, uh, an Andy Gill interview with Steve Earle, Literally two weeks after 9-11, where Steve Earle is talking about how the powers are immediately kicking in and, and uh, the Bush administration is taking full advantage, you know, to sort of lock up the, the, the boundaries and everything. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's and so he's, he gets, he's pretty he, angry. He, he understands precisely yeah, what's going to happen. Exactly. Um, there's a great piece about Marvin Gaye, Fred Della wrote for Mojo's Time Machine, about Marvin just going completely insane in London in 1981 and sort of like running around a hotel naked completely oh, yeah, off his this. mind do yeah. you remember this and it was this the last time he ever performed in London this he was is just insane. before he goes to Ostend Ostend yeah yeah, um, yeah. didn't cocaine had anything to do with that I think uh, it might have done that's the implication <laughs> let's just assume that uh, the, the the drug that Andy Weatherall referred to earlier yes. also crops up here Fred um, Della by the way just to give a different perspective of his career <laughs> used to do the crossword for Smash, Smash it. and he delivered it to Dr. Bits, i.e. me. <laughs> Dr. Bits? Yeah. I seem to remember, because I got yeah. very I always loved Fred Della. I remember Fred sometimes in a slightly surreptitious way sort of saying goodbye to us. He'd be at the enemy, and then yes. he'd sort of say, uh, but, and then we'd see him walking across the street. <laughs> no, he's delivering the crossword to me. Yeah. Yeah. I would probably ask you what's going on in there, then, with that bunch of losers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the sweetest man who ever walked uh, uh, and I always like his thing. He still writes in Mojo. Still, I mean, yeah. and he's he's an octogenarian. Now. Wow, he's still, he's yeah. still, you know, he's one of writing. those people again. Yeah. He knows everything about the fifties. He yes. really does. Uh, you, you needed him on your pop quiz team. Didn't no, you, you do. Someone else, by the way, like that is Seymour Stein. Oh, right. really? We were briefly signed to Sire. Our album Nightlife oh, yeah. was released on America on Sire. Yeah. And he really is basically 1950s music publisher. That's true. And would talk about all these labels and, uh, okay. and songwriters and stuff. He took us out, you know, clubbing in New York in a limo. Chris Heath was there. <laughs> of course. Yes. Taking notes. Yes. Taking he, was, notes. he was taking notes. He was taking notes. Good for Chris. I think we need I'd to like take that, that out, actually. Yeah. Yes, there's various things I can't mention on a podcast. Yes. He didn't <laughs> chase you around his office or anything. No, because no. those are always the great story. He used no. to chase Dee Dee Ramone around the Sire offices. <laughs> no. Yes. Wow. I mean, I was no, I mean, impressed I, that he signed Madonna, really. He didn't really have to do much else. Because he, uh, he went way back to, no I, like, we all had the, the compilation Google? album yeah Sire compilation mm, album yes with the flaming groovies on it cool right yeah, uh, yeah. very lovely we must wrap sorry, up the yes, very yes, last yes. piece I just want to quickly refer to is a, a wonderful profile of Willie Nelson's drummer Paul English oh it's fantastic by the excellent Joe Nick Petoskey and um, this is for the Oxford American magazine yeah. and it's a sort of hair raising story 
of this guy who's been Willie's pal and kind of backup man for yeah. so many years. Carried guns on behalf. There's a famous song, "Me and Paul," yeah, yes. and and it sort of turns out that he really is. He's just he's he's like kind of cross between Hunter S. Thompson and Jim Marshall. I mean, he's he's always like. He's always carrying, always carrying, carrying pieces, and he's always ready to go and leap into action and and so he claims and he's protect mellow. Willie. And he claims yeah. that he's mellow. But, but, I mean, who knew what an extraordinary character <laughs> yeah. he was? It's, I mean, you, you were disparaging about his drumming, but when I saw, I thought it was the Albert Hall. But Martin claims yeah. that it was actually the Hammersmith Odeon. I saw Willie okay. Nelson in the in the early eighties, and the way in which Willie, Willie and his guitar and Paul English's drums worked was. Absolutely astonishing, and the rest of the band had to follow that sort of. Action. Well, and you can hear that on some records. Yeah. I just think he kind of deteriorated a little bit. But I time I saw him in Stockholm with Willie in about ninety-four or five, he 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 just well, was they brought, kind of not keeping time. They brought really. a second drummer in yeah, around yeah. that time. I mean, I don't know what you know, what, what that was about. Um, but was, for me, it was a magical show. I wasn't yeah. I wasn't expectating much. I wasn't really actually oddly terrifying me that familiar with Willie's stuff outside of Crazy and a handful of other songs and the sound of this gut string acoustic guitar through a kind of proper amplifier yeah. it's like heavy metal yeah. gut string guitar and this drumming which just seemed to push and pull in an extraordinary way the second way. best version of Always On My Mind <laughs> <laughs> there you go when, when we did Glastonbury last in don't say you brought Willie on stage. No, no. <laughs> we were we we flew in from somewhere or other, and we stayed in a hotel down the road. And so, we, for the first time ever, I went to Glasgow the day before. Mm-hmm. And Chris and I walked into Glasgow. We walked into the main bit, and Willie Nelson was on the stage playing "Always on Mind." Perfect. And it was just so great. You were always on my mind. You were always on my mind. Yeah. I've always liked those albums he did of yeah. standards. Oh, that's fantastic. Stardust is Stardust, such a great record. You know, really um, amazing, yeah. Uh, and, you know, when I saw him, it suddenly occurred to me that, you know, he's presented as a country artist, but he's actually got more to do with Big Speed of Beck and as a white Carmichael. Absolutely. You know, yeah. th- that's the tradition he's really out of. And his, his guitar playing, as you've yeah. often pointed out, is very, very sort of jazz. Yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of somewhere between jazz yeah. and Mexican music. You know, Django Ryan, um, I know he's very influenced by jazz. And as a singer, he's he's got this extraordinary way his phrasings mm. can be so far behind the beat it's just not true i think it's just marvelous and he's mm. had an extraordinarily long career you yeah. know and and almost uh, as long as the pet shop boys. and actually even longer maybe and he stopped not writing songs which i think is a great shame but he stopped writing songs i think when he felt he just ran out of songs to write and i think that some songwriters you only have a finite number of songs in sure. you you know you yeah. clearly buck that trend but, <laughs> but uh, i mean i remember feeling I'd run out songs after a one and a half album. Well, also, you know. Neil probably doesn't smoke quite as much weed as Willie. Well, you know. <laughs> if, if any. I've never if been any. a weed smoker. He hasn't it always made me feel sick. Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> um, it always made me feel sick. Yeah. But uh, that feels like a kind good, of good suitable <laughs> we're, we're go out. We're, we're going to go out with the last clip, which is where you discuss how a certain football chant was created oh. from one of your yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and we've all sung along. And we've all sung Those along. Those of us who go to football matches um, have all sung but along. What a, I mean, it's been a huge pleasure. It's, Thank you so thank much. Thank you. For I've coming. enjoyed it too. Thank you. We hope so. And, you know, I read 
the site. I, you look, do. I have various articles on it. Uh, <laughs> you certainly do. Which I was. I always I felt I'd written more articles than that, but I don't. You haven't, and they, there will be more. Yeah. They, they, yeah. they do yeah. get sort of drip fed in, yeah. um, but there are more, and there are more coming. So uh, subscribe to Rock's back pages for more Neil Turner. <laughs> but thank you, Neil, so much for coming. Yeah. It's been such a joy, thank and um, we will be back next week without a guest. We do have some great guests coming up in the near future. Paul Gambaccini's coming yes. in. Lorraine Altman. Yeah. Um, Love Gambo. Gambo. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> join us next week. Neil, good luck with Hotspot. Thank you. The Chris Heath reissues. <laughs> yes. Santa Mara Our film is coming out again. Uh, <laughs> and reissued by the BFI, bizarrely. That's you know, cool. And yeah. enjoy, enjoy the tour. I'm looking yeah. forward to it. Yeah. So it's made the first in Berlin. Fantastic. I'm going to try and snaffle some tickets. I'm my my sure eldest Marie son has asked oh. if we could... Uh, can you can you get us into the O2? Because he lives very near the O2. Uh, I'm sure we can. I think it's yeah. late May, isn't it? So it's the end of May, I believe. Twisting yeah. Murray's arm. Oh, great. Um, great. Thank Fantastic. you so Thank much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Lovely. Really enjoyed it. Bye. Bye. Northern Italy, I believe. I mean, I'm not a football fan. Chris is actually a big football fan. He supports Arsenal. It starts in Northern Italy and spread into Germany. That's when we were first told about it. Though I didn't quite believe it, really. I didn't realize how big it was, anyway. And then it spread into France. And then Paris Saint-Germain, the French Paris football team, played Arsenal in the part of the European Cup or something. And they were singing some chants to the tune of Go West. Uh, Arsenal started singing one nil to the Arsenal, one nil to the Arsenal, <laughs> one nil, and now it's it's a, become a you know they they sing um, your sheets and you, you know, know you are. are. <laughs> uh, do you live in England? Or, I live here, but I watch the football. Oh, okay, And uh, Chris occasionally phones me up and says, "Turn on the sports channel because they're all singing Go West." <laughs> and Chris said one of his greatest moments of his life was when he when Arsenal won the European Cup. And they're all singing 2 0 to the Arsenal. And he said it was just, and, and playing our record, sing along with it. He said it was really, really good. <laughs> he can die a happy man. That was Neil Tennant in conversation with Stephen Daly in 1996, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Neil Tennant. Details about the Pet Shop Boys' new album Hotspot and upcoming tour are available via petshopboys.co.uk. The new editions of Chris Heath's Pet Shop Boys books are published by Heinemann. The hosts were Bonnie Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. That really was terrific, that was honestly. Great, that thank was you. hugely enjoyable. We knew you'd be great, but you were you were stellar. <laughs> and, uh, you give you do give great quote. There were there were a couple though. It's just like if even if you'd just come in and just said that and then gone, <laughs> it would have been worth it. <laughs>